Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Len Osanic. We are speaking to author, investigator, Ray McGinnis. Hello, Ray. Hi, good to be with you, Len. Thank you uh, so much. You're in Vancouver, so it's a pleasure I got to go up for lunch with you, and then you're here at Black Op Radio Studio, so this is a, a treat for me. I don't normally, I'm talking over Skype or over the phone, so welcome. You've written your last Unanswered Questions book we talked about, I think, about a year ago. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about the truckers, the Freedom Convoy, and you went to witness the trial, the hearings they had on it, not exactly a trial, but they had hearings where people testified. So just before we get into that, and, and articles, we'll make links to the articles you've written about that topic. Give me just a brief background with your interest investigating journalism, and then this topic, and we'll get right into it. Okay, well, I've, I mean, I have a background and. I took some political science courses and history courses in university. I've always been interested in following the news, and uh, and I've been um, I've mostly been writing, teaching poetry, and and helping people write memoir and journals. But I've always had an interest in politics, and so I uh, began writing the book about September 11th when I was looking at the family's story and their investigation. And and as as a result of there being the reason why there was a 9-11 commission at all, I thought that there was not a lot written about that topic, and so I thought I would write about that. And as a result of that book, which came out on the 20th anniversary in 2021, September, I've then had uh, over 80, 85 interviews, uh, mostly on radio shows in the States about the book, and and it, as it happens then, now I'm going from that 9-11 commission now to the Public Order Emergency Commission in Ottawa. So maybe I'm going to end up, when I look back in my life sometime from now, thinking myself as a policy wonk on commissions and inquiries, which would be a surprising thing to say. But it's, it's interesting about how these inquiries go, the political theater, and what doesn't get covered in the press. I think I've been surprised on how interesting they are. You would think this is going to be the driest thing ever. And then they bring up fact and item after fact that you go, how can that be? How can that be? And earlier I was just saying that when you watch Building 7 fall, when you look at that, you have to ask yourself, you know, what happened? Now, if you're not interested and, you know, not everyone is, okay, fine. But as soon as you are, then you will say, well, 
boy, that looks like any controlled demolition I ever saw. Then, well, what about Building 1 and 2? They fell the same way. I mean, was it, you know, is this an inside job? And then you start looking into it. And then, and then the commissions themselves are an expose of more fraud. You know, why didn't they ask the question? What do you mean? Bush says, oh, I'll go meet the guys for lunch, but I'm not going to testify under oath. You know, it's just, and then Cheney has to come with them. It's almost, it's almost Twilight Zone stuff, except you go, no, no one will believe that. Don't, you know, forget that, right? Now, with the uh, Canadian trucker convoy, the topic that maybe in case you're not familiar with it, was that there were mandates put in uh, government overreaching, um, mandatory vaccinations uh, to travel. I'm not sure, you know, across borders for sure, but, you know, even to just to get into things, uh, like someone said in your book, uh, you know, you can't go into a children's clothing store, but you can go buy liquor any time of the day and night, right? So, so this topic was, and let me ask you the question, what caught your interest on the topic of the truckers protest and mandates yes i'm i am the accidental chronicler of this story because in my life there's one person that i know who lives in portland oregon who comes up with his with his spouse every summer to go to the vancouver folk festival and this guy chuck drives a truck he's the only person who i know who drives a truck so i have no you know, I mean, I see trucks on the streets and I know that they deliver goods to, you know, hospitals and hardware stores and grocery stores and, and industry. Uh, but but I have no interaction in my life with, with truck drivers. Uh, I, I have a personal trainer in Vancouver whose wife works on the on the docks down Verard Inlet. And she let him know. And he passed on the word to me that uh, that on the week on the 21st of January last year that that there was going to be a protest of truck drivers going to Ottawa, and I was aware, not deeply aware, but I was aware that the prime minister had passed, uh, the, the, you know, had signaled that he was going to put in force on the 15th of January. Uh, that this had happened, I guess, six days before this conversation I was having. Uh, that he said, okay, all, every truck driver has to have vaccination before they cross the border. And I knew that there was some pushback from Chamber of Commerce trucking industry about the need for this. Why not just have a rapid test, for example? One of the first things that piqued my interest was I had been told, okay, there's going to be this protest uh, going to Ottawa. It's the 21st of January. The next day, a friend of mine was going to come up from White Rock to see me but he couldn't because uh, the highway, highway from Vancouver to White Rock was all snarled with, with gridlock with truck drivers. And he told me, that he understood from listening to the CBC, the reason that there was all this gridlock was because the truck drivers were protesting the condition of the provincial highways in British Columbia. And I thought, really? I mean, I mean, everybody knew what had happened back in November 2021 with, you know, seven different major highways having major flooding or, you know, damage to the roads and truck drivers and everybody else understood that the highways department was doing the best they could to get things back up and, and running. So that was odd. And then the days following, I listened to the CBC and they said around the 25th of January, that the re one of the reason the reason that the truck drivers were going to Ottawa was because the Russians, Putin, had had put this idea in their heads, and I you know I, I was skeptical. So so th these are the first two things was like I was I was getting some stuff that seemed to be 
dubious you know like clearly by the end of the weekend of the 21st second third the cbc and the other other media were on the same page no they're actually going to ottawa <laughs> these truckers right so <laughs> you knew from a trusted source what the story was but as you heard the news that you called it dubious you thought well that's not what i know to be happening so like before they're even arriving you know this this idea is that uh, the cbc is saying well you know we think they're going because the russian actors have suggested it to them i mean the cbc did retract that on the 4th of february but you know so so i don't have a tv so i'm not like a lot of canadians who are watching all kinds of images that were you know like you know i would i would sit down with friends you know kind of in and out of my bubble, occasionally a lunch, and in the middle of it, they'd be kind of exploding with ups, upset and rage and disgust because you know, they'd seen this this Nazi flag all the time. And and I mean, and I'm just trying to you know understand, listening to, to how upset they are. And and I I listen to numbers. This happened a number of times every week throughout the protest. I'd have one or two visits with friends, and someone would be so upset and. Isn't it disgusting about, you know, these people? And I had one visit with some friends for lunch and, and over at a restaurant, and uh, they were talking about, you know, it's just awful, this, this, in, this insurrection, you know, the, the, this attempted coup, uh, which, which had not yet been successful, but they were worried that it was going to be successful. And I, I, just, I just shook my head. I, I, I wasn't... Um, I wasn't coming down anywhere in terms of landing. I was just taking in all these perspectives. And it took a while before, be, before I began. I mean, I w I'm on Twitter um, ever since <laughs> May of 2021 because of my book, Unanswered Questions. And so I would see people following me and, so, and suddenly getting, I would get to see live feeds of what was happening on the, you know, uh, Parliament Hill. And I could see that there were, you know, Yes, many white people, but also there were certainly persons of color. There were Asian Canadian ladies being interviewed. There were well, well let's not know. get too far ahead. Yeah. I mean, you you heard about the trucker protest, and I'm just going to say it gathered speed, momentum, like Calgary, uh, you know, the prairies, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. So that's when we heard that. Uh, like I never, my first thought was kind of, oh, they'll never get there. Like I wonder how far they'll get before they bail out, right? But it really gathered momentum uh, that you heard that there was so many trucks waiting and to, to join this convoy, and it didn't seem that they were. It didn't seem like they were going that fast. Yeah, well, they were. I mean, they were. They were. You know, leaving. Uh, you know, from the west, they were leaving. You know, the Delta. Uh, Vancouver area, also up Prince George, uh, maybe a bit west of Prince George, and, and also there was another one coming out from, you know, Nova Scotia. Uh, but, but they were taking their time. Uh, also, they were being slowed down uh, because, as they, I mean, at, at at almost every single overpass, and almost every single. Uh, side road intersection where 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 cars merge onto the highway uh, in the Fraser Valley and going further through the uh, you know through the Fraser Canyon through Kamloops, British Columbia, and, and British yeah. Columbia, yeah. and on through you know Banff and in through Alberta, uh, truck drivers would be slowing down because they've got all these people with Canadian flags waving at them, 
and and the further the further they went into, I mean, once they're getting into and holding Alberta, placards, supporting yeah, them, supporting, supporting them, them. so supporting. They, yeah, right. I saw a lot of footage of that. I I saw everything, mostly everything, kind of after the fact. You know, I heard that there was uh, this thing was happening, and then they're joining in in like Kamloops or you know wherever, and and then in Calgary or Lethbridge or wherever they're joining, and like I, it didn't seem to me that it was a real two day event. It was took a week or so for them to get across country and as they did they g- gathered momentum more people joined to then finally they get to ottawa which is surprising and they just pulled up in front of the parliament buildings and they all stopped there and for a while they were honking their horns and they were actually demanding to meet with the prime minister or someone and say we're the citizens we want you to address our concerns with the mandates the number one thing i think was border travel that if they're sitting in their truck by themselves and they're just dropping off, turning around, picking up more and going back and forth, they aren't a threat. Many of them were vaccinated, but in the instance that someone wasn't vaccinated, how can you just enforce this work stoppage that you're not allowed to work? It happened in the airlines. and ha- Forget the science because, you know, no one had time to really know if this vaccine was going to work or not. But let's just say it did. So the mandate is, um, if you don't have a vaccine passport, you can't travel. You can't do anything. But this is the mandate. The word mandate refers to that. Yeah, and they, and I mean, the, the people who were truck drivers, I mean, they, they may or may not know uh, truck drivers in other countries. But if they did, I mean, they, I mean, the United States is also very much Joe Biden and Trudeau are working together on this, and uh, you know, it's the U.S. is also insisting that the Mexican. U.S. border also have this kind of cross-border requirement for all truckers to be vaccinated. But outside of the U.S.-Canada border and the U.S.-Mexico border, truck drivers were being treated differently than the Prime Minister of Canada had suddenly switched because the truck drivers have been called for two years nearly the heroes of the pandemic. And they've been taking all this product uh, all over, you know, to, to, to keep the economy running and they were essential service designation. This designation of essential service workers was still uh, being given to them regardless of their vaccination status in almost every other country. I mean, it may be the case, I don't know, I can't find this online, but it may be the case that say, for argument's sake, uh, China and Vietnam said, no, you all have to be vaccinated. I don't know. But truck drivers were going all over, you know, across from Northern Ireland to Ireland, all over, all over Europe, all over the Middle East, all over Southeast Asia. I mean, there were some complaints. I could see some news articles about some people in Cambodia complaining that maybe some truck drivers in Thailand might be bringing the virus to Cambodia. But nonetheless, they kept on driving across the border. So, so it turns out that while the government, the government was taking this hard stand saying, no, truck drivers must all be vaccinated across into the United States, this was an outlier. It was like... And like, and like, imagine being a truck driver saying like, so is there something about trucks in Canada that makes them especially susceptible to the virus? Is like, what is it about? Uh, is there something about the virus in Canada? Because they're noticing that truck drivers are driving almost every other country in, in the planet in and out, in and out of that country with 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 no problem. No, no. Uh, there's no other rule like this outside of Canada, U.S., Mexico. 
Yeah, I've seen these memes where you, they show people in an airport standing six feet apart, and then the next shot is them all crammed into an airplane. You're inches away from each other, right? Yeah. So driving truck in a cab, you know, I wonder how many people you actually meet. If they scan barcodes, you pull up, you drop off your uh, load, pick up an empty container or a full one back, and you just go back and forth. The other thing is, I don't know if anybody really minded the testing. It's like, look, I'm not sick, but I'll prove it for you. I'll take the test. Okay, I don't have it. I'm not sick. Okay, now what's the problem? And and, and we've got the situation where, of course, well, the protests are happening between the 29th of January and up until the time the, the government uh, cracked down on the 18th, 19th February. Nobody knew, but in mid-March or in March, the Health Committee, Parliamentary Health Committee, had Health Minister Duclos and the Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, testify before them. And they were asked point blank, have you any data to show that truck drivers are, uh, you know, spreading COVID-19? Is there any anything that would cause, there, is there any documentation that there'd be a, a concern about this? And they had zero data. You'd think with all of the, the drawing a hard line and making this a hill to die on on the part of the government, that there'd be some sort of data to say, oh, truck drivers are spreading COVID. We got to. Yeah. Okay. So the convoy, they nicknamed it the Freedom Convoy. These are concerned Canadians. It gets to Ottawa. And what date is that? Uh, that's the 29th of January. Okay. So January 29th, quite a few trucks there. They essentially kind of cut down all traffic to that area around Parliament. And there was some shops that just closed. There's other shops that were like a Tim Hortons or coffee shops that were like doing great business. So did you see anything the first couple of days? I mean, all I saw was, it's hard to put it in words, but it reminds me of like a fair. Like there was the streets of people all walking up and down the streets. There was seemed to be some little booths set up, information things, people networking there. Give me your impressions. Yeah, the, yeah. well, the, I mean, my impressions, uh, again, are, are looking back on this sort of after it was over. Uh, you know, by the time the Emergencies Act, was, I was really interested, but but on the 14th. But, but yeah, it was a fair. I mean, there there were, you know, I mean, on the weekend of the, of the, of the 29th, there were like 12, 18,000 people there children with their parents people of all ages a lot of white people maybe 85 percent or more but certainly a range of people of, of color all you know like seek uh, truck drivers that have got a food booth and and first nations drummers drumming uh, muslim canadians doing a prayer uh, prayers on a friday you know yeah that was something i i recall them offering I don't know if, if they charged whatever, but they were offering food and, and things to fellow protesters. So what happens with the government? Did they, of course, I know the answer, but did they, any, they send anybody down to meet them, to talk to them? Nothing. So, no. so, so and I want to say, like, back in 2020, I mean, this is Ottawa. Ottawa is a city with 99, 100 days a year. There's a protest in Parliament Hill. And it's just typical that somebody sends someone down to f just check it out. You know, it may not be a high-level cabinet minister but, I mean, or even a deputy minister, but someone kind of goes representing the government to talk to whoever is, is there to see what, what's, what's going on. And in 2020, uh, there was First Nations protests across the country from 
early January till mid to late March. And BC ferries had uh, disruptions in the sailings. Uh, the coastal gas pipeline construction was blocked. Uh, CN Rail was blocked for over a month for, for shipping, as was Via Rail and a highway in, in uh, Ontario. And throughout the 11 weeks of those protests, the Prime Minister's position throughout was we have to dialogue with these people. And, and so when it came to the, the truck drivers and the protesters, based on the history of, of people protesting and who come to, to Ottawa to protest, could have a reasonable expectation that somebody would talk to them. You know, maybe, maybe they wouldn't change the government's mind or persuade them, but at least there could be a discussion. Or a negotiation, meet in the middle. We can't just end this, but here's what we can do then. You know what I mean? And, and, and uh, yeah, a dialogue between, well, what do you want? And here's what we can do. But it's a, an, an example of the government not representing the people at all. It's like turning their back on them. And this was in the news hourly, you know. And then more and more people went down there to join, even if you didn't have a truck you people went down there and it was quite an event and it was a big protest in encircling parliament and then the prime minister i think he went on holidays well he was he was uh in seclusion for covid you know he he just gotten covid again this third time again uh, and, imagine. and and he and i mean he also had said that uh that the protesters were a fringe minority and racists and white supremacists and did he say that off the top though well, he, about the, I think the 28th of, uh, uh, or 29th of January, yeah. Yeah, it was, oh, it was, it was oh. yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So That's the unbelievable thing here as I look back on it, well, you know, somebody having their head in the sand, that this is a, a, a textbook example of how not to handle something. Everything was done wrong. So first of all, people are coming to meet you. Then you won't meet with them. Then you just insult them. And then, and then you belittle the whole cause. They're a fringe minority, you know, or whatever he called them, right? Fr fringe, it was the news item of the year, I believe, right? Yeah. yeah right? So yeah. It, everybody was watching this, and they're saying, not only do we support you, but then they started a GoFundMe page, and they said, we'll support you as well. I'll send in $20, because these guys were there camping, and they, it kind of, you call it whatever, and... People were saying, look, I can't make it in person, but I believe in this as well. I'll send you $20 for gas money or food money. So this trucker protest started to get a, quite a, a sum of money. It did. And this is the thing about the, the, the rhetoric around the fringe minority. I think in 2021, the Liberal Party of Canada throughout the whole calendar year raised 18, $18.5 million in a year. Over a year. Over a year. Uh, in the, uh, I mean, they had the Go Fund Me and the Go Send Me together, plus some cryptocurrency. You've got uh, raised about twenty-five, twenty-six million dollars all told from one hundred and seventy-five thousand Canadians in under three weeks. I, you know, I mean, this—that's a lot of. Uh, Sorry, uh, can you repeat that? Yeah. You, did you say only 175 Canadians? 175,000. Oh, right. 175,000 Canadians raised about 25, 26 million in under three weeks. Right. I mean, and also this is being frozen as well. I mean, there's a, there's a great incentive to not give money because there's a lot of threatening talk from the government about, about the consequences of giving money to these fringe minority people. <laughs> 
Well, let's get into that. I mean, 175,000, that's not a fringe. You know, there's quite a few people believe in something to, I don't know what, what the mon- monetary is for, but I mean, I can't imagine sending more than 20 bucks. But if somebody has a go, a, you know, thing, I'll send in something. So you think but they got millions yeah. right off the bat. And then what happened? Yeah. Well, that got, account was frozen. Yeah. So then, so then the government, in, once the Emergencies Act was declared, Christopher Freeland, they put in place, you know, freezing the bank accounts. Now, when it comes to the freezing... Well, wait a minute. Yeah. There, that, that's, there's one thing before, if I'm... Correct me if I'm wrong. But I thought the first page, they froze. They shut it down, saying you can't access that. And then they said something about foreign involvement. The Russians are behind this. And then there was a second one that started up. Yeah. So there was and a second one. Isn't that the one where people said, look, we're going to start, we're going to, if we can't freeze that one, which was out of America... It was. It wasn't called GoFundMe. Something go very send, similar. Go send me. Go send me. Right. So then they said, "Well, we'll freeze your bank account. Then we'll just freeze your whole account if we find out you've been donating money to that. You've been donating money to a cause that you may believe in, which is the Freedom Convoy going to Ottawa to meet Parliament, to meet representatives, to say we want to end the mandates or." meet in the middle, something. We, we have to relax these mandates. We can't go on year after year like this. Well, correct let, me. Let, yeah, let, okay. and, I mean, the, the, the whole, uh, I mean, the whole effort of, of raising money, I mean, I mean, this is not, this is not, you know, the people who fought, who follow FinTrack uh, is involved with, is a Canadian part of the government and they're monitoring things like terrorism and money laundering and so forth and they definitively said that that there's nothing here to do with any of the money that's being raised these are just canadians who are upset with with the government's policy and why was it called freedom convoy well it has to do with the charter of rights and freedoms one of the rights in in that charter says that canadians have the freedom to enter and leave their country at will we have freedom of mobility but the government is saying no. This virus, which which with a with an infection fatality rate of like 0.25 percent, so 99.75 percent of the people that get this are going to survive it, which is as good or better a survival rate than even getting the seasonal flu, must now stop everything because of of this virus. You know, in fairness, there was a lot of fear about it. What is this unknown virus? But then some people were waving the flag saying, this is like a common flu. If you're very elderly or you're diabetic, overweight, you know, you've got to take precautions. But it did seem that when it, for a retirement home or something like that, if they got in there, one person got it, they all, there was no people, did die. I recall hearing stories in Italy where it was quite a few people pass away. But I was unaware of how many people normally die each year from the flu. If you look up those statistics, you go, wow, I mean, I had the flu and, you know, I'm down for a week or something. But if you're immune deficient in any way, just a common cold can kill you. So that's, you know, like you said, 0.25, even even 1%. Then that's another debate on how bad is it. But at the same time, the thing that does bother me is people in power, they go, well, follow the science, follow the science. And then you ask them, well, show me the science, like... Is there a report, like you said about truckers, right? Are they a high risk 
group? Are they really? Is this how the virus is getting around from a truck driver traveling from here to Ottawa back and forth? Is by he them, spreading it? By themselves. It? Right? Yeah. By, yeah. No, I know. Yeah, I know the answer. It isn't. So, so therefore, uh, yeah, I remember one time going to my bank and they didn't, I couldn't even give them cash. I didn't want to give them, they wouldn't take the cash, you know? And, you know, I was like, I can go to McDonald's and give them money. What do you mean I can't put money in my account, you know? You know, you have to go around and use the automated bank machine and you can't talk to a teller. And that, that you know, this is just anecdotal complaining. But I'm more interested in what happened is after this, there was an inquiry and you had the um, the interest to go sit, go to Ottawa and visit and, and sit in on these hearings. And when I read your article, we'll make links to your article. It's so interesting of what you hear on the news is not not only a lie. A lie is a soft word. It's a total con. It's a total con of what they really know, what what they knew, uh, specifically in the case of Canada with the RCMP. These guys are investigating this quote. Early on, I think the CBC said something about, this is the Russians. The Russians are doing this. I mean, everything is the Russians, that it's such a joke. And... And then you hear that these officials testify, no, there was no foreign involvement. There was no... You know. no. Even, so, the, even the government of Canada's lawyers in their final submission to, to the commission said that there was definitively no foreign influence. Yeah, well, I think it, it, from your article, the quote, something like was, we don't know where our politicians are getting information because I'm in charge of CSIS and we don't have any of this. It's like, we're, we're our... The jaws are dropped. How can they keep reporting these stories and then leaking it to the news Then the news asks them, you know, and uh, it's a self-fulfilling lying cycle when it's not the truth. And I think the interesting thing is lately with Elon Musk having these revelations about Twitter, about what the real, the real facts are in a case. And these things are just manipulated. And then uh, they uh, some politician starts spouting something, and then... Well, anyway, a different yeah, topic. Yeah. Like, tell me but, about but, what interested you to travel then to Ottawa to hear these hearings, because you, at arm's length, I guess, were listening to news, and then you... Yeah, well, I, over, over, the, over the spring, I mean, I, I, mean I, I knew from the summer, from August of 2021, as someone who did get vaccinated, you know, I decided to give the benefit of the doubt safe and effective. And then I get to hear from the Center for Disease Control in the States, Rochelle Walensky, concedes in early August 2021 that the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission and doesn't prevent infection. And I thought, well, that just, that just completely was a game changer for me. So, so then to have the prime minister insisting that the whole nation has to get 100% vaccinated with a vaccine that doesn't prevent transmission and doesn't prevent infection, I just thought... Well, you know, like that'd be like being in, 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 in elementary school and we're all we all get our polio sugar cube vaccine and find out, oh, we're all crippled. <laughs> you know, like 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 what what is a vaccine good for if it doesn't prevent infection or tra- or stop transmission? So I was skeptical about that. And, and I, oh, I mean, I listened to I mean, in the spring, I listened of 2022, I would listen to and follow up more things uh, uh there was a story in the news about how the truck drivers come all the way from the East Coast and West Coast to set apartment buildings on fire. And uh, there was a clumsily, a, a clumsy attempt to set an apartment building downtown Ottawa on fire on the 6th, I think, 5th, 6th of, 
February. And the media and the mayor of Ottawa were just outraged, of course, anyone sets arson to a building. But two days later, I, I, I saw much later in March, two day, on the February uh, press release from the, from the Ottawa Police Service, that in fact uh, the people that were involved were not involved at all with the protests. And sure enough, by March, there were a couple of ne'er-do-wells that the Ottawa police are well familiar with that had been involved in this clumsy attempt to set the building on fire. Uh, so Yeah, somebody, one lone woman was dancing on a monument, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and, and but the news is so quick, oh, the truckers are doing this, the protesters are doing that. You find out it's not, it's not that. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Some person brought a Confederate flag there. Some person brought out a... A, um, uh, yeah, Nazi flag, just and of course the cameras all rush to there. They take pictures, and before you know it, it's foreign governments, it's the Russians, it's communists, it's um, Nazis. Nazis, it's yeah. uh, white supremacist, right? Yeah. yeah. And in British Columbia, trucking industry is a lot of Indo-Canadians, right? So um, it, it just if you phone or talk to anybody who who you go, that's not the case at all. And for my instance, I was surprised at how many people had cell phones that were doing live streams from the protest there. And I'd log on every now and then, you know, live stream Ottawa. And you'd see, well, this is not a riot and all, you know, so. No, there, there was a thing like, uh, like there was a young man who's uh, Afro-Canadian man who's involved. I think he's a manager or co-owner of a, of a business running a fitness club in downtown Ottawa. And he was going into into the protest, uh, happy experience of doing so, picked up the, the the kind of Canada Day celebration kind of tone of of the goodwill that was there, peaceful. His mother, who watches the CTV religiously, he said, was concerned, and he said, "No, Mom, it's okay." And he convinced her to go down with her, and said, "Now, the moment you feel the least bit uncomfortable, we can leave." Well, they stayed there for quite a while, and she, you know, gets compliments on her, her coat and other things, and, and after they were done, he said, so what did you think? And she said, I don't understand what they're talking about on the news. These people are so friendly. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're there as a community of concerned citizens to say, we're complaining about this, we're going to protest. And the shame of it is no one came there to address them, where local police may have come local someone from the city hall may have come there to talk about saying okay can you shut the horns down then you know or can you do this okay listen you're gonna there's just too many people here if you can remove some degree a half the trucks 75 percent of them if you can leave a 20 or 30 or you know some number of trucks as your protest can can we get the streets moving again and and that happened and these negotiations did happen but not, not anything to do with the actual mandates. And that's the real failing, in my mind, of, of, of the government that just wouldn't meet and talk to them at all, but labeled them as terrorists. In fact, I think uh, Trudeau had said uh, they're using children as human shields. This is the complete opposite. They were bringing their families there to say, this is what a peaceful protest is. You know, the government just can't shut this down year after year after year and then... We can get into that, but you you saw in the news there was going to be hearings, and it piqued your interest to say, I'd like to see what they really 
find on an investigation? Yeah, I was, I mean, I was watching uh, from mid-October. I was watching and catching some highlights in the news and uh, seeing uh, clips from actual testimony. And, and I could do that by going to the Public Order Emergency Commission website, and they have uh, the daily, uh, you know, the, what was live streamed each day that's there archived, as well as I could read the transcripts of the 300-odd, 400 pages in a, in a given day. But, you know, my life carries on with, with a full life, and I can only take in so much. I knew that there was a lot more that was being that was happening than, than I could, could, could grasp. And so I just decided it would be very interesting because this is historic. I mean, after the FLQ crisis in 1970, the, pre, the forerunner of the Emergencies Act, there was the McDonald Commission, which happened from 71 to eight, uh, sort of 77 to 81. And I thought this is, this commission, which is just six weeks is, is, uh, is also historic. So I better go there and see it myself and see if there's anything different. And it was, so I, you know, I was there, you know, the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th to hear. Of what month? That this is no, October, November, 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 November okay. mid-November. So I'm here. 2022. 2022. So I get to hear, you know, Brenda Lucky, the commissioner for the RCMP and John Osowski, the, the former president of the Canada Border Services Agency and uh, Jody Thomas, the national security advisor of the Prime Minister and the Clerk of the Privy Council, Ginny Charest, and, and others. Right, right. But you had the, um, I don't know the right word, disgumption, whatever, but, you know, the interest to say, I'm going to go witness this, I'm going to go sit in these hearings and for myself uh, get an idea of what's going on. So tell me your impression. I mean, I know it's in your article, but... Well, the first impression is, I mean, you have to go through secure... I mean, first impression is I walked from my hotel along the length of, of Wellington Street. Now, back in February, the government was said, you know, there's congestion on Wellington Street, we have to clear, clear this, you know, it's like we need, to, we need to sort of have this street back, you know, for this people of Ottawa. But what the government did after the protesters left was they put up blockades. No one's been able to drive on Wellington Street since they left. You know, on the like the twentieth oh, February. Yeah. So I'm so I'm walking down this eerie sense of, you know, walking down Wellington Street with you know barricades and everything, and nobody. So can They drive. don't want to happen again. They, so they blocked it off so nobody can get there. Yeah. You know, well, you can get on foot though. Travel. Yeah. There. I mean, you can walk on foot, but just so and then you go through security, just like being in an airport to get into the library uh, Canada Archives building. And then I go and sit down. There's about maybe 200 chairs. Like, you know, each aisle has eight chairs to the right and eight chairs to the left. But I'd be like, you know, for four days in a row, uh, I happen to be one of maybe half a dozen to a dozen uh, ordinary citizens. There are a few, a few people from the press as well that I knew who they were. But, so you know, maybe just, 10, 20 people there? Not even 20. Okay, but yeah, a handful, yeah, okay. yeah, a handful of people and, and just, a, you know, a dozen of the most ordinary citizens when I was there. Of course, when, when the Prime Minister and Christopher Freeland and others the following week were there, there was a, a larger gallery of people. But, but what I thought was interesting was like, okay, there was one guy from Hamilton that I talked with during a coffee break and me from Vancouver. Maybe these other people are here from the local area. But very, very low interest in terms of people saying, I want to see this in person. Most, it seemed that the, the typical citizen's response was, I'm going to let the media tell me what's going on. 
So that was my first impression. And then, and then listening to, uh, to, to people explain. Um, I mean, I listened to the whole issue in this inquiry to determine was the government did, was overreaching, it, uh, overreaching, or were they, you know, making a, a wise decision to declare invoke an emergency, which had never been done before. I mean, since the Emergencies Act was declared in 1988, and there's four tests, which are. You know, you declare an emergency if there's evidence of espionage, of sabotage, uh, serious acts of violence, or a plot to overthrow the government. And I heard from, you know, people in CSIS testifying, no, no espionage, no serious acts of violence, no sabotage, you know, plot to overthrow the government. The CSIS director said, we didn't even look into it. It was so non-existent. Right. So, I mean, all they'd have to go there and walk through the crowd and see who the people were. Yeah, yeah. So what I think was, was really eye-opening for me, because I, I don't know what I'm going to hear, and I don't know these people generally who are speaking on, uh, on the witness stand, but when Jody Thomas, who has a long suit in being involved with the Canadian Coast Guard, and she's in her new position as the National Advisor, uh, Advi Security Advisor of the Prime Minister, since 11th of January 2022, so just a month later and a bit, the Emergencies Act is declared. She's being asked about all of these thresholds for declaring an emergency, and she's agreeing no, no sabotage, no espionage, no plot to overthrow the government. And she's asked, well, were there, you know, serious acts of violence? She says, in response to the question, were there serious acts of violence? Well, there was continual violence. And then she's asked, well, what do you mean? She says, well, there was, there was pollution. And then, and then she says there was noise. Well, we go over again. Well, yes, there was an injunction by Justice McLean from Ontario on the 7th of February, and the hawking stopped. I mean, you know, maybe, you know, uh, an odd truck driver who was, uh, <laughs> was non-compliant. But what was happening from talking, I talked to Tom Morazzo was there, who was one of the protest leaders, and they had all the block captains from every block had a captain for the protesters. And after the 7th, because they wanted people to, to abide by the injunction, in a couple of cases, they, there would be a, a, a truck driver saying, nobody can not make me honk my horn. And they said, okay, you keep on honking your horn, we're going to cut the cable connecting your horn, you know, so that you'll be making no sound. So, you know, then people would stop. So, you know, so there was no noise, you know, I mean, it was awful to pick. I can imagine how awful, I hate even car alarms, so I can imagine honking, you know, all day long. It's awful. But it stopped on the 7th of February. And then she, and then she's asked about, you know, she says, well, there were ideological motivated extremists. Now, again, you know, what, what's the most visible sign of an ideologically motivated extremist? Well, the Nazi flag bearer, for example, yeah. who, who happened to be walking an awful lot of the time around the Chateau Laurier Hotel with his flag, which happened to be, by coincidence, occupied by a lot of hotel guests throughout the, the, the protest that happened to be RCMP officers. Now, how can all these RCMP officers that are in the hotel and right around the hotel not occur to any one of them since this person's got a Nazi flag and given the reaction of the media commentators, Rosemary Barton and Marco Mendocino, public safety minister and others about how awful this flag is, it doesn't seem to occur to any police officer 
RCMP or Ontario Provincial Police or Ottawa Police Service or CSIS to go up to the person carrying the, the Nazi flag and say, why are you doing this? Or, or come to our station or follow them to get their, their license plate. We still don't know who that person is. Like this, this, the, the high rhetoric of outrage contrasted with the absolute uh, sitting on their hands prefer to eat Tim Horton's donuts. What they wanted the photo moment, you yeah. know? Yeah. You know, so this is, you know, what Jody, you know, Jody Thomas. She, so then she goes through, well, there was also, she says there was a, 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 a aggressive social media. <laughs> you know, well, well, yes. I mean, I have no doubt that on a daily basis that somebody may tweet or, or, or send an email to somebody that expresses uh, their disdain for variously the prime minister, for opposition leader Pierre Polyev, for Jagmeet Singh and Elizabeth May or whoever. But this happens all the time. In every country, in every, you know, the, you don't like uh, that guy, vote him out, and then he gets to meet the new boss, same as the old boss, right? There's constantly a complaint, You've, even with Obama, whatever, you know, he was a uh, hope, and then what happened, right, you know? Uh, so yeah. and, and so in terms of, like, you know, threatening social media tweets, I mean, you know, I, I read the uh, article back in February 2022, about uh, former justice, Supreme Court Justice Beverly McLaughlin said, you know, she was talking kind of about freedom. It's like, you know, what is all this talk about freedom? Like freedom to utter death threats against the prime minister. And yet here we are in, uh, in mid-January 2023, not a single person who was involved with the protest has ever been charged with or is even facing pending legal charges regarding uttering death threats against the prime minister. So again, where's the beef? Right, that's from from other people. It could even be from other countries and people with a fake account, you know. So, like you say, why didn't the prime minister address the mandate problem? But uh, he didn't. So it's almost as if uh, we need something that we can get behind to show the people we're doing something. I need a. I I need to look strong. Let me invoke the Emergencies Act over something. This truck drivers looks perfect. You know, go out there and put somebody with a Nazi flag or a um, Confederate, Confederate flag. flag. Get pictures of that. Wave that around. All go in front of Parliament and then be little people. What are you with the terrorists? Are you with the Russians? Are you? Are you? You know, I think he even called them Nazis and got a, some complaints in Parliament that you know from Jewish representatives there saying, "What the hell are you talking about?" You know, go down there and meet these people. It's not Nazis down there. No. It's the furthest thing from it. You know, they're there with their families. Oh, they're using their children as human shields. Yeah. By, I mean, it's appalling. By, by playing road hockey and making snow sculptures and eating hot dogs inside their trucks when they won't oh, keep warm. Until you see the bouncy castle and things like that, you don't know. I had the same example with my mom. My mom was a little complaining what she saw in the news. And I said, look it, we're going to do this. I turned on my cell phone. Here's a live feed. This is what's going on right now. And when you see this, when you see it looks like in Vancouver, it's called Playland, right? And every city has a little fair. But when you see that, 7 o'clock of Friday night, you know, in Ottawa, and you, well, what the hell? It's not terrorism, you know? It's people encircling the parliament, parking their, if they were honking their horns, saying, we want representation. Send out someone. No? Okay, we're going to stay here until you do. So and, I want to I talk about sure. what's, what's going on here in Ottawa. So, 
you have uh, Diane Deans in the city city council, who's an, she's with the police board. She chairs the police board. And, and like around the 7th or 8th, uh, she's saying to the media, these people are terrorists and mercenaries. So the protesters, the protest leaders, they're like, we need to do something to de-escalate things because like this kind of, this kind of comment from Rhetoric. politicians is just unhinged. It's ungrounded and it's, and it's, it's divisive and, and dangerous. And so, uh, and so they began a, a back-channel conversation with, with people in City Hall and say, okay, we're we're going to, um, you know, and with, and the long and short of it is, by the 12th of February, they have signed agreements with the mayor, Jim Watson, and with Tamara Litch signing for the protesters, saying we are going to, as protesters, remove 75% of all of our vehicles, will be gone from the city of Ottawa, and that will happen. It's going to take some time because. You've got all these vehicles in all these adjacent blocks, and you know uh, the people that can leave are the people at the block where there's no other vehicles in front of them, right? So right. you have to, you know, it's just like a parade. You can't get the people in the middle to leave first. So, so, um, so this will be done, and we will move 75% of all the vehicles on a schedule that signed off and approved by um, Serge Arpin and Kim Iote and Steve Kanellakis are all, you know, senior staff in the mayor's office. So you, you know these names. This is yeah. like a real negotiation that yeah. happened yeah. that said, yeah. look, we don't want to, we're not terrorists. We're here to protest. If this is, okay, we were making our point, we'll remove 75%. Yeah, and they had they had places uh, to the uh, southeast and to the north of Ottawa where they were going to send their truck, and others were just going to go back home. And by noon on the 14th of Valentine's Day, the day the invocation of the Emergencies Act, 102 vehicles had left. And we know this because the City Hall staff were taking photographs of the license plates of each vehicle that was leaving. And so... Uh, so what would have happened if the Prime Minister had not invoked the Emergencies Act on the 14th of February? By the 16th, 75% of all the vehicles would have been gone from Ottawa. And let me add, too, there's all this uh, uh, ringing of hands about how we need to get some tow trucks. Well, if 75% of the vehicles that you need to get out of here are already gone of their own voluntary volition, you don't need a tow truck to take someone away who's already dr driving off. So, so then, if that had happened uh, by, the sixth, by the end of the 16th of February, then it would have been clear to, to Canadians, or could have been clear if the media had reported the story, that the truck drivers had been honest brokers, that the protesters had been able to br broker a deal with the city of Ottawa, and now there's only 25% of the protest vehicles left on Wellington Street still upset with the government. But then, you know, that changes the story. Now, all of a sudden, these impossible people that are fringe minority, that are unreasonable, you can't talk to, they've just successfully talked to the city hall. Right. And also, since about the 2nd of February, they've been having daily throughout the day phone conversations, text messages to the police liaison teams of the, of the city of, of Ottawa, making sure all the emergency lanes are clear. I mean, every once in a while something would happen, oh, there's a, there's a lane blocked, and the police officer would say, come and look at this, and find out the lane is being blocked here because city of Ottawa equipment vehicles are blocking the lane. So, 
you know, so other things were happening occasionally that it's not the protesters at all. It's the city of Ottawa's equipment vehicle that stopped here for some reason, or a couple of police cars even. So, um, so they didn't want to have, no. So are you implying that you think that uh, Justin Trudeau rushed this through because it would be embarrassing if it solved, if they, you know? It's, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a line of, of, of inquiry that really is worthwhile because you've got, uh, the, turned out in the, in the, in the commission, You've got people in the uh, Marco Mendocino Department of Public Safety staff and people in the Prime Minister's office as early as the 23rd of January before uh, Cabinet went into a retreat on the 24th. So this is the 23rd is like the first day that trucks are re really leaving the West right. Coast. And, and the Cabinet went into retreat? In, into a retreat what on the 20th. What does that mean? That means that they, they have re Cabinet retreats. Like they have like a, a, a meeting, you know, and they, they go to some like fancy hotel or whatever, and they have a, a special meeting, right? And they're having that retreat on the 24th starting. So the day before, you know, they're texting, texting Marco Mendocino and other people and saying, you know, you know, we're going to portray these, the, this, these people who are leaving the West Coast as January 6th North, like the, the protesters in Washington, D.C. on the 6th of January 2021. Uh, we're going to describe them as white supremacists and, you know, uh, racists and all that kind of stuff. And and there's even like a one, I forget, Catherine, somebody uh, who has some sort of a, either an email or a text message on the 27th of February trying out this talking point that, you know, really upset that these protesters have been violent for these many days. It's amazingly prescient to be upset about people being violent for so many days when they haven't even arrived. Yeah, you know, so 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 they already have a game plan how they're going to. Uh, it's a narrative of what they're going to do, yeah. and but the only thing missing is addressing actually why they're coming there. Mandates. No, no, that know? no. The, the 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 government it seems could not afford to have a discussion about the the, the rationale for their mandates, the rationale for their cross border trucking prohibitions, the or other other mandates. Because then they would have to have a discussion about their, quote, science. And, uh, and it seems, as the months have gone by, that it's get looking sketchier and sketchier. And so it's far better. I mean, you know, as Jody, Jody Thomas, you know, you've got the clerk of the Privy Council, Janice Charest, is telling us on the witness stand, she learned most about what was going on from watching the TV news. I mean... She's telling her people, we need to, for the incident uh, response group, we need to think outside the box. No idea is too crazy. Of course, the only idea that was too crazy was for someone to go and talk to the protesters. The clerk of the Privy Council is saying, we need a 360 degree view. Well, wouldn't a 360 degree view be enhanced by talking to some protesters to find out what's going on? So, by the way, <laughs> they did have a kind of hierarchy. I saw a couple of times where a reporter was interviewing, like you mentioned, three or four people that were representing the protesters. So there was somebody to go speak to. You didn't just have to, to go down there and not know who to talk to. There were people, like you mentioned, had been talking to the city and, um, and others, but, you know, nothing from the government. And like, like uh, 
The failing of this that it is just almost unbelievable is that they would not discuss mandates. They would not discuss it, never mind saying, okay, we'll meet two weeks from now, or, you know, we'll, we'll do something. Cut down, the, cut down the traffic, okay, turn off the horns. Oh, you did turn off the horns. Okay, can you reduce the amount of congestion? Okay, you will. All right, we'll meet with you, right? Okay, and that just didn't happen. And the opposite is true. They dug in and they started calling people. Well, the thing is, like from the CBC, when they had an ombudsman actually investigate it, there was no Russian involvement. But that's the first thing they say, right? No, and the CBC's ombudsman in October of this past year uh chastised the, the national broadcaster, reminded the journalists that they have a responsibility because they can influence the public and that they need to remember, you know, that not to breach their journalistic standards and that when they report a story, that the story has to include evidence. Uh, so, and, and you've got, uh, you know, Jody Thomas and Janice Charest and, 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 and Prime Minister Trudeau all saying, well, we didn't know who to talk to. Even though you've got nightly news things about here's Tamara Leash, here's Tom Morazzo. I mean, you know, people knew who, who, who could be spoken with. So it's uh, the, the government did not want, because they had this, I mean, the Emergencies Act was tightly constrained when it was devised in 1988. So that governments don't just sort of, you know, run roughshod with, uh, with uh, overreach. And yet what the government did uh, was decided, okay, we're going to expand our definition of, of what a threat is. And we're also going to, to do it based on worst case scenarios by, based on ungrounded catastrophizing. The prime minister said, well, there were an expl explanation for why there had to be an emergency act. He said, well, there were unknown interiors of trucks. You know, even though the police had gone to every single truck to make sure that there were no weapons, which there were none, and yet you still have people like Natalie Druan, the deputy clerk of the Privy Council, saying, oh, we're worried about guns. Well, yeah, I think one of the questions was, uh, you know, like how many loaded shotguns did you find? None. No. None. And like none, like they were surprised. Well, we even heard they all were yeah. armed and they had loaded shotguns. Yeah. And you, you're saying none? Am I correct about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah there were, just, there were, there were, no, it's just, and over and over again, you have allegations of, of you know, pretending things are supposed to be, you know, children are, are dangerous somehow. Uh, and this, this kind of, of, I mean, any, anything could be, you know, like, you know, maybe your, your BC lion's coat could be a, a danger for me some, and maybe there's a lion, I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, any, any, anybody can get in the business of, of this is like chicken little. I mean, you know, like yeah. running around saying the sky is falling when there is no sky falling. And we are in trouble as a nation if this is now the bar that we've set to say all a government in the future has to do is catastrophize and run around uh, imagining uh, uh, threats that are actually not grounded in fact and, and then go ahead and invoke yet again another and, emergency. And barring act. the discourse, the discussion about it, right? You know, uh, and the thing that one... The reason I did want to talk to you about this was it's 2023, it's January, but just um, a week or two ago, I saw, um, I forget where, but it was just recently I saw Justin Trudeau talking about this topic and he was doubling down and he was still saying that there were, um, you know, uh, foreign actors. I hate when people use the word actor. That means you, if I hear somebody say actor, I go, you don't know what you're talking about. 
There's no, there's no actors, right? But foreign actors, and he was doubling down about Nazis and white supremacists and all this, right? And it's like, I mean, have you not, you know, he was there in the commission. I mean, he just does, he seems oblivious to the reporters, at, you know, querying him and saying, this is not true. Everything you said about this is not true. Now, if you want to discuss the mandate, that's a different topic, give and take and, you know, and... And the no. vaccines and everything. There's a discussion. No, we we know from from Jody Wilson's Raybol's memoirs, and we know from recently about to be published or has been published, Bill Morneau, former finance minister. We know that the prime minister lies, and he lies routinely. And so the the prime minister is being more than oblivious. He knows he's lying. When he, you know, I mean, his own government lawyers are bringing to the commission the conclusion that there was zero, nada, zilch, any foreign influence at all. And yet, even though his government lawyers present that to the commission as their conclusion, he goes off and just goes on about foreign influence again. He just, he is, the prime minister is running his government, assuming that Canadians are so busy or frightened or fragmented that we can never pay attention, we can, that we don't have the ability to dig down and look at what is actually going on. That none of us, surely, maybe, maybe he's right, given how few people were sitting in the commission hearing with me those four days. Um, maybe he's right that people uh, will mostly just read the headlines and let him tell the rest of us to fill in, fill in the gaps. Well, you know... You're here with me. We're talking about it. You've written a very good article about it, among others. But I'll make a link to that and anything else I, I can and help people just recognize. I mean, this is the world we're living in. Um, every government seems to be wanting to clamp down on disinformation. And yet they are the number one purveyor of disinformation. I mean, this case is just um, textbook. It, you know, it's just it's unbelievable um, you know, from the old movie, Black is White and White is Black, right? What what was reported in the news? And then lately I had mentioned um, if you go to uh, Global or CTV or CBC to some degree, when they post up their news story on YouTube or somewhere, comments are always disabled. Like nobody can, can say, well, this is not true. Here Here's the document. So here's the hearing. You can see the people saying there was no foreign uh, threat. There was no espionage. There was no loaded weapons. But yet in the press, they go, we're worried about uh, trucks could be full of dem- you know, explosives. And, and they're just waiting to push the button and blow up those city blocks and that. And then, you know, before you know it, you've got, it just, that's not the case. Yeah. And, they, br- and- they brought their families families with them. But the whole idea is the eclipse, the real eclipse of the topic, which was, how can we end the mandates? The mandates are just... Too unfair. Like after you know, they say we're going to wait 15 days to flatten the curve, and then another wait 15 days, and um, I went along with it. There was one morning I remember that uh, the Trudeau came on TV and he just said, "Look, enough is enough. Everyone, stay home for two weeks, whatever." And then they started to subsidize. I was okay, great. If I have to stay home two or three months, and I'm getting something for it, okay, you know. Uh, and, and a lot of people. Uh, I mean, I kind of commend the government for that aspect that they put some money into it, but but they they eclipse the the real total thing, and then you can go, okay, well, let's talk about these vaccines, right? Are they safe? That's a debate. 
Do they work? That's the debate. And then you find out one of them is only tested on eight mice. I mean, you can you can start looking into these doctors that were all um, kicked off of Twitter and belittled, and then only a few people like Joe Rogan or um, maybe Jimmy Dore. A few people said, "Well, you know, you're um, in the RNA vaccines. You're a biologist. Tell me about them, right? And how effective are they? And they go down from ninety nine, ninety seven, eighty eight. You know, and now it's like hovering around fifty percent, thirty, whatever. Yeah, and then then you go, well, what are the adverse reactions? Well, we're not going to talk about that. And by the way, we're immune to prosecution. You have to take that up with your own government. So then you go, well, what are the adverse, you know, reporting? Do do people even report all the adverse? reactions of people who've just dropped dead. And what and what did Pfizer? I mean this is this is the the thing as I as I mentioned in terms of you know I mean I don't think that most people would have known who were protesting back in a year ago uh, because it it sort of dribbles out and it's, these things are hard to find and who wants to read a document anyway from a pharmaceutical company but but it's there as a link in my article and and in uh you know Pfizer, to its credit, maybe it's required in order to be a pharmaceutical company, has a worldwide safety branch. And the worldwide safety branch, uh, among the other things it does, was was monitoring uh, and compiling data and statistics regarding what they believed internally uh, were uh, adverse events that they thought were solid enough for them to report. I'm sure they'd be conservative on it. Um, and they had concluded from mid-December 2020 to end of February 2021 that there had been 42,000 adverse events that were remarkable to note. And of those people, 1,223 had an outcome which they list as, quote, fatal. Okay, okay. But I'm just saying, you know, like yeah. early on, this is early on, you know, and then, you know, you've got a lot of countries that are sort of jumping in, you know, into the spring and so on. And, and you know, there's people complaining about vaccine not being ready yet and yada, yada, yada. Maybe, maybe Pfizer was the great majority. But anyway, 1,223 people had died. Pfizer's, you know, conclusion of the worldwide safety branch, which produces and publishes its report internally at the a marked confidential on every one of its pages. And they pass it on to the higher-ups in Pfizer. And what do they do with it? They want to make sure that that report will not be released to the public until 2096. Yeah, they want to withhold documents for 75 years, 75 right? 75 years. Right, that, so, that's, uh, it reminds me of the Warren Commission, right? Yeah. It's so just lock, lock up the, I mean, the thing is, you have this distrust in big pharma, but it seems to be earned. It's not like tinfoil hat stuff. You say, well, I have friends or they've told me about these adverse reactions. Right now, who wants to get COVID and die of some new disease that we don't really know about? But if you tell me it's like the flu, and if you're afraid of it, stay home, you know? And if you can't stay home, then take precautions. Then wear a mask. And if you want, vaccines are available. But then when you make it mandatory, and then you tell me, well, don't worry about, we're not going to cover you. It, it, it's safe and effective. Yeah. I mean, the question would be, I mean, the question should be, when, when a pharmaceutical company understands from its own internal con conclusions, from its own report, that 1,223 people have died within, you know, um, 75 days of rolling out the vaccine, 
the question should be asked, uh, who are the people who've died? Are there certain people with certain health conditions? I don't know, Crohn's disease, you know, you fill in the blank. Diabetes you know, or something, right, yeah. Whatever. Are there, are there certain categories of people that are most at risk from this? Is the dosage too high for certain people in certain age groups or certain weights? I, I, you know, like, what what can we do to make sure that this is not what happens every 75 days going forward? But but instead, the kind of, like, duck and cover response is, is, is just so unethical. So I think it bothers me, too, that, that Bill Gates and other guys that are in it just for the money are behind it. If you had the Canadian Medical Association that were says we're not profiting on this. We're going to break even. We're going to cover our research, and here's our best recommendation: this vaccine. You'd, I would feel safer about it. I thought, okay, good. It's not like a money-making scheme, and and so often you hear that the guys were paid off to fudge the results. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I mean. In terms of my my interest in sort of writing the report, I mean, writing going to the to the commission and stuff, um, you know, I mean, of course, it does t- touch on the vaccines, and I know that some guy Paul Offit, I haven't even read the article, but I gather he was with the FDA, and now he's saying yes, we were, you know, kind of, uh, you know, putting our thumbs on the scale and uh, and and trying to get the vaccine out, even though we knew that children really don't need this and so on. I mean, this kind of stuff is coming out. And Dr. Asim Mahaltra, renowned cardiologist in, in, in the UK, has been speaking about, uh, you know, there's some documentary called Second Opinion. But clearly, um, what, what, you know, what the Prime Minister has been doing, uh, you know, with, you know, with throughout this whole pandemic is saying, I know better than you. I've talked to the I've talked to the experts that we've cherry picked to talk to, and we've made sure that nobody else in the whole scientific community can have a discussion with any of these people. And that's not science. Yeah, and you know the other side of the coin is I have heard Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about this as saying, well, it didn't turn out as bad as it could have, but if if it was bad, then you'd say, look, we, we have to rush a vaccine. This is the best we can do. Here, you know, here is the, uh, what's in place, right, to build and test and these vaccines. And of course, normally they're tested over a year or two or years. Or so, right? Yeah, years. Right? So, so, but the thing is, I think it's the mandatory tyrannical overreach that, no, you, you're not in charge of your body at all. And you're a risk to others. I mean, the opposite true... I mean, well, I shouldn't say it that way, but I should say that I always had the opinion that, look, if I have the vaccine, why am I imposing it on you? Because I'm, I've already had the vaccine. So if you don't have it and you're overweight and you've, you're diabetic, you're at risk. And if you refuse it, you're the one who's going to suffer. But they're, they're saying, no, you have to do it for the greater good of the community. But we've already yeah. been vaccinated, well, right? Yeah. And so we- I have a, you know, elderly people living at home. And, and so I had to. But I haven't had more than two. I mean, because I'm just starting to. Well, when you, when you're told by the Center for Disease Control and, and other other bodies around the world that the vaccine doesn't prevent infection and doesn't prevent transmission, I mean, what what are you vaccinating yourself against, as it were, if you're not preventing infection or transmission? It's it's I uh, you know uh, that I think that that's a game changer for a lot of people, and that's why we have. A lot of people in Canada, at 50, about 50%, we've had two doses, 
but very you know not a lot of uptake on the third and certainly not the fourth right because you're learning more and more about it now but but you know it could have been like uh neil tyson says you know it could have been worse and uh but still you know if you take it i, I just think it should be voluntary and if you don't take it then it, you're it's your own risk right now um i'm not sure about travel and that but that's a whole different. Well, we don't have to well, talk about the vaccines. Well, let's, well, let's talk My, about the travel. I mean, right. th- that you've got this uh, one of the lawsuits for the travel vaccine mandates with uh, Carl Harrison and Sean Rickert, who are two expat Brits that live in Canada. Their lawsuit uh, was going forward because they wanted to end the travel, ma- the vaccine passport requirements, and and although the uh, the judge uh, declared the uh, the whole case moot in mid-October, they did have discovery, which went on for six or seven weeks in June and July. And it revealed that the people in Transport Canada and Public Health Canada, when it came to, they did not recommend to the government vaccine travel mandates because there was no scientific data to support it. It's just that clear in what they said. They recommended things like, well, maybe social distancing or maybe wearing masks. So, uh, you know, this again, this is like this is like a bombshell story. And where is the mainstream media in Canada? I, I had to read that on the Telegraph in the UK uh, last, last August. So, so the you know the the the, the claims, uh, the unassailable, infallible claims that were presented with over and over again end up seeming to be not so infallible and not so solid. But, uh, but it seems that the, the media in this country has uh, an attitude that they don't want to report anything that could cause people to question uh, the wisdom of what's been going on the last few years. Yeah, and I think it was just so interesting for me to watch the Prime Minister I know he's lying. I know. I know that's not true. You have to know it's not true, and you're yeah. saying it in January. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And he it, was. It's and, a. It's really, really appalling. And I was a big supporter of him. You know, for you know when he came in, and even you know whittled away a few cracks and that. Ah, uh, I can live with that. In fact, I had a few other arguments. They they say, oh, Trudeau's got to go, and I say, okay, well. Who are you gonna? Who's the next guy? Who are you gonna replace him with? If you have someone better, show me that guy. We'll vote for him. But I hadn't seen anybody better, and so in the meantime, we have to accept him with his limitations. And you know, it'll happen for the next prime minister as well, right? You know. But um, in this case, it really is. Um, it's it's appalling. Yeah, he's he's crossed the line. I mean, he's you know on on the on the stand. Uh, he says under testimony that he never called anyone who was unvaccinated names. I mean, you know, roll the tape. Please roll the tape. And I know that the lawyer for the Freedom Convoy, Eva Chipiak, um, she only had like 15, 10, 15 minutes at all. Like all these, the commission gets a long time. The government lawyers get quite a bit of time. But then there's all these other lawyers from all these different groups like the Democracy Fund. They get like 10 or 15 minutes at the most. And then down goes the gavel. Your time is up. So, you know, I can understand she's, uh, <laughs> you know, he when he said I never, you know, I mean, she decided to say instead in response to him, I think what she said was instead of saying, well, you know, yes, you did. Or, you know, she would have said I wouldn't don't remember that. I'm sure he would have just not recalled it. But instead, she said she thought she he should resign. But I mean, 
It's just. <laughs> so, in uh, January, where does it sit? Would the, the hearings are over? Hearings, the hearings ended. Um, uh, the Prime Minister was allowed to speak on November 25th, 2022. There were a number of talking heads, lawyers and professors talking about uh, uh, states of emergency and things the following week. So, I forget which one, but one of them sort of talked about, well, you know, we, we might have to get used to more of this, you know, like more emergencies and stuff. Uh, and I think that's concerning. Uh, but the final... Uh, presentations by all the all the different uh, legal groups government of saskatchewan bc union of of indian chiefs and city of windsor and so on was by the 9th of december so chief justice rouleau has between the 12th of december and the end of january to to sift through 76 witness testimonies you know three to four hundred pages of transcript every day you know five thousand eight thousand documents and, and put together reports somehow, which then gets presented to the cabinet, the Liberal cabinet, on the on the sixth of, of February. And they're going to have two weeks to tweak their talking points before the rest of the MPs and the opposition get to see the report. So that's going to be interesting because <laughs> it puts the does the report have recommendations? It may, and uh, and it may also be the case that the. Uh, the cabinet, looking at the report, may want to uh, massage the report a little bit before it gets to the whole the full parliament on the 20th of, of February. I don't know. I mean, this kind of knee-jerk uh, reaction to anyone wanting to investigate further, they go, follow the science, follow the science. And I recall in your article somewhere, it had something about when uh, the RCMP were called for kids playing outside, somebody's playing road hockey, and the cops threatened to taser the kid. That was in Calgary, yeah. Y yeah, I mean, that's unbelievable. Follow what science? Yeah, so, so there's the science. Is, is, I mean, there's, there's all these different reactions, you know. I mean, I was just on a plane recently, and someone just wanted to shake my hand because they said, well, you've been on a plane, so let's not hug. Like, okay. I mean, you know, you got people in, in Nova Scotia at one point all being told they have to wear three masks at the same time. Uh, you, you've got people in in Nova Scotia being told uh, you you if you get if you go for a walk by yourself on an outdoor trail in the province you can be fined by a police officer. Yeah, you can be fined in the outdoors for walking yeah, by well, yourself. And then what what science is that? You know? Yeah. So, I, I the same thing I heard. I think it was in California, or I'm not sure, but somebody was paddle boarding. Yeah. You know, by themselves yeah. out on the ocean yeah. and they're out, you yeah. know, we're going to find you. Southern California. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's crazy. So uh, so you get this authoritarians want to take the letter of the law and, and just bully people and they're not following any science. Well, and then it, you say, OK, well, show me the science. It's, it's, well, you well, know? it's the science of catastrophizing anything that you can imagine that's frightening, uh, whether it's a, a, a young child on Parliament Hill or, or a hot dog, or you know, like or, you know, or a back, whatever it is, you can keep on making it a scary situation. So, you know, it's just we've completely lost uh, an ability to uh, to have a conversation about what exactly. No one's really allowed to say, "How do you know? How do you know that uh, that truck drivers pose?" a danger to uh, the health of Canadians by crossing the, the border. You know, and at the same time, the Canadian government, which is really concerned about the environment and 
you know, climate change. By deciding to have, which ended up being about 20% or so trucks not crossing the border, had to put all of the cargo that would have been on those trucks into planes that are now spending time, you know, doing what planes do, flying around the atmosphere and landing in the very congested and overwhelmed catastrophic uh, situation in, in uh, Pearson Airport, which is chaotic and unmanageable. And I, I uh, listened to some podcasts where people were talking about this lack of trust of government. Um, now when they talk about global warming, climate change, when you see all the, the things about Twitter and Russia Gate and how many things are just not true at all, people are saying, I don't even know if I believe these guys anymore. And if there are legitimate concerns about global warming, now people have such a distrust uh, and it's been earned. So like when I, when I think about um, government and somebody says, oh, they, they all lie, you go, okay, I, I knew that to some degree, but maybe it's just the degree. I just didn't think they'd be calling black, white, what, you know. It's like, um, you know, I'm not in politics, but in in one minute conversation over coffee, you could say, well, let's meet with these guys and let's address what they want because maybe we can do it, you yeah. know. Cause, cause so you... If, they, if they were to, you know, and I don't know the ins and outs of crossing the border and what the mandates had, but it's just like, what do you mean you won't even talk to them? You know, it's just, it's like, uh, it's a kind of anti-government. It's a kind of, uh, you know, and this Klaus Schwab guy, oh, he takes the cake. Yeah, well, this, with, uh, you know, with the I mean, climate change, I mean, the government has uh, been talking about, I don't know if they've walked it back at all, but, you know, they were talking about, we're going to require all of our farmers to reduce their nitrogen footprint by 30%. So they ha can only use 70% of whatever they're using now. And this is the kind of thing that's cooked up again by a bunch of, a, a bunch of people uh, sitting around a table in, in Ottawa, in, you know, in elite circles that have never been on a farm in their life. Because if they did, they would know that farmers, I mean, my grandfather was a farmer in Northern Alberta, and farmers don't try and, and buy a, a huge excess of bags of nitrogen or, or, or fertilizer or anything uh, when they're trying to make a business. They don't want to buy a huge amount of extra stuff that they don't need. And, and nowadays, farmers have apps. They have apps to tell them exactly to the ounce how much nitrogen they want to put in every, every acre of soil. So it's not as though someone needs to go and teach farmers the the ABCs of nitrogen in their soil. But this is the kind of thing, I mean, how much do you or I, living in, in an urban setting, think about how much nitrogen needs to go into, uh, into a farmer's uh, acreage, you know, crops? We don't. And so the people in government can tell us things like this, and then we're all worried about, oh, there's too much nitrogen in Canadian farmers' crops, uh, which is nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really enjoyed your article. Uh, there was other things I want to talk about, but probably we'll, we'll do that another time. I mean, the whole talk of vaccines, how effective. I think the thing that's missing from it is the adverse reactions, you know. Uh, I think if the um, the companies were held accountable, they would be a lot better. But the fact that they're immune from prosecution on these things... Uh, they give a carte blanche to say, oh, it's an emergency, we have to release it without, and then they're making billions, you know. So that's a whole other topic. Yeah. So today's yeah. topic was how the government uh, in, 
enacted and reacted to um, these mandates and people protesting. And, and I, I was, uh, it was, wasn't a proud day for, for Canadian government. And uh, it, it just, it was another, you know, little hatchet mark that you lose your faith in the government that, you know, not only are they not working for you, but they're actually working against you. Ironically, numbers of people, Jody Thomas, the National Security Advisor of the Prime Minister, Janice Charest of the uh, Clerk of the Privy Council, and a couple of other people, we're all talking about about how um, the, the, the protesters were, were, were uh, uh, they had to invoke the, the Emergencies Act because they, they were, um, uh, you know, undermining the confidence in public institutions. Now, what better way to restore the confidence in public institutions than to have somebody from the government go and meet with the protesters? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which that could have worked out well for the government, even by taking a hard stand on this is why we have to do this. But at least they would have been able to say, we talked to these people, you know, yeah. whatever. But they didn't even do that. And so that also undermines public trust. Yes. Yeah. Well, you can bypass the word protest and just get on to mandate. You know, say, here is the topic. It's mandates, you know. And, uh, you know, if I, if I do want to travel or whatever, okay, I'll take a test. Here, I'm not sick. Or if I am sick, they'll say, no, you, you can't go today. I mean, we're, we're kind of moving into a world now where, you know, you know, even though the World Health Organization said 99% or more, and at one point, uh, Anthony Fauci said, you know, asymptomatic transmission was basically a myth until he talked sort of five sides of his mouth and changed his mind. Uh, but asymptomatic transition is just like so rare, so very rare. Well, that was another this thing is, that you... This is the thing that they do, uh, you know, but let's make sure now that we imagine that every healthy person walking around is somehow a, a, a clear and present danger to our own personal health and, and, and existence. This is kind of like George W. Bush saying, well, we have to go to war in Iraq because there are weapons of mass destruction. You know, it's just like always positing a worst-case scenario where none exists. Yeah. Or George Zimmerman down in Florida has to kill Trayvon Martin because he felt threatened. I mean, there's no threat. It's a big man, a small boy. But, you know, it, it, it goes on and on. We yeah. always imagine threats that are ungrounded and catastrophizing. Um, it's a bad yeah. Before we wrap up, is there anything else? Is there, i just give you time if you wanted to bring up any other topic or anything for now that I didn't get to. I think just that, that, that people can go. You know, I would encourage your listeners to go to the Public Order Emergency Commission. Go to their website. Watch, you know, they don't tell you the names of the people. They just give you the dates, October 18th or November 2nd. But, you know, go and find some people like the Prime Minister or Christopher Freeland or, or Tamara Litch or, or whoever, you know, or some of the police early on in, in mid-October testifying very solid. The police were really solid, and their testimony is damning to the government's story. All right, well, thank you so much for dropping in. It's a pleasure to speak to you all. Uh, you have a, an article, I think, on, on Vietnam and a few other ones that I caught my interest in. We'll get to that another day. But uh, thank you so much. You're listening to Black Op Radio. 
Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Len Osanic. Today, we're speaking to author, researcher, Jim DiEugenio. Hello, Jim. Good evening, Len. Great to hear from you, buddy. Good to hear from you. We'll tackle a few things. We'll take listener questions. We'll talk about what's new at your website, Kennedy's and King. And we'll talk about what's new in the world of uh, JFK research, RFK, anything like that that's coming up. So, All right. All right. There's one thing that I think we should address right off the bat. That is the upcoming legal maneuvers around the Robert F. Kennedy assassination case. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to mention it again, and I'm going to direct everybody who's listening to KennedysandKing.com for the action alert that we have placed up on the board. Please act on this today. As I mentioned earlier, not today, but a couple of weeks ago, there is going to be another hearing on Sirhan's parole. And Angela Berry is the attorney of record, and she does these kinds of things a lot. Okay. So to help her, we're asking again, and I think we asked this before in the previous hearing, and as you can see, it worked. Okay. We'll talk about why Sirhan is not out in a moment. All right. But last time, apparently it worked and the parole board voted to release Sirhan. Okay. Now, the March one is, I think, March the 12th. Okay. So if you're listening to this show, you have approximately one month. Okay. And well, actually a little bit more than that, about six weeks. All right to go ahead and follow the instructions at kennysandking.com, okay? They're very simple and they're very straightforward, all right? And what they consist of is the address for the Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, which we have right there, all right, at the website, and going ahead and forwarding a letter saying that you're in favor of Sirhan being paroled. But don't focus on the facts of the case, okay? Write about his age, which is 78, okay? The fact that he's been a model prisoner, and he, he has, how prisons are overcrowded, and he is not a threat to anyone at this time, all right? All right. Another thing I would bring up when I have written down here is that Sirhan has served a much longer term than people who are in prison for a similar charge. Okay. Finally, there is a new law that says people under 26 at the time of their crime and Sirhan was 24 should have their youth weighed higher in the parole decision. So those are the key points we need you to write about, okay? His age, model prisoner, prisons are overcrowded. He's not a threat to anyone. He's been in there much longer than people charged with similar crimes. And the new law that under 26, that should be very high in the pyramid of decision-making on whether or not to get a parole. All right, so 
please, as you're listening to me talk about this, go to the website, download that page, and start writing it the minute you hear about it and make, get it in the mail the next day, all right? We don't ask you to do very much. Me and Len don't ask you to do very much, okay? I mean, that's really true. We've been at this for a long, 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 long time, okay? And we don't act very, ask very much of our listeners, but here we're doing it. Now, why does she want to do this? Because as we know what happened, California is one of, I believe, two states right now in which the governor is allowed to overrule the parole board. And this is what Gavin Newsom did the first time around. Now, let me add two things why we're doing this. Number one, it's going to be harder for him to do this if it goes through the second time. Also, she has a court case coming up on his ruling, which should be very, very interesting, all right, to say the least. She's very good at these kinds of cases. And I think that's one of the reasons that Sirhan's brother, uh, Sirhan's brother, Munir, brought her into the case, because this is her specialty, uh, appeals before the parole board. So I talked to Munir the other night. He's very much looking forward to this. And he is encouraging as much public uh, interest in it also. So please go ahead and do this. Sirhan, after all, is the last of the three. Oswald, Ray, Sirhan. He's the last of the three. And we can possibly get him out. I'd love to be at his home the night he comes uh, home from incarceration. I'll buy the beer. I'll buy the biscuits. I'll buy the donuts. I'll buy a lot of stuff. Okay. <laughs> but I'm not going to fly anybody in, Len. Okay. <laughs> All right. So please go ahead and do that for us. Thank you so much. Okay. Now, secondly, I know you've seen this, haven't you, Len? The interview with me and Oliver. Yes. By, by Eloise. Yeah. I thought it was terrific. I really did. It's good. And just wait till the one I do. <laughs> I, I thought this was so, I thought Oliver came off so well on this. Okay. And I even wrote him a letter saying, you know, you should show that to all of your dear friends and relatives. Cause I think that's the best interview you've done since the movie came out at the Cannes film festival back in 2021. All right. So we have that. Well, let's tell the story behind this. As most of us know, me and Oliver were invited up to Quebec by Paul Blow and his friends in the, uh, the Quebec Film Festival and in the Department of Tourism and in this incredible hotel. And they sponsored this event. The last, look, every event was packed. The screening at the cinema, there was not an empty seat. The next day at the media event, not an empty seat, standing room only. Third night at the Diamante Theater, I think it's 625 people. Again, not an open seat, packed. And by the way, those seats went for as much as $99 a chair, and they still sold out. The interviewer at that last night was a real Putin basher, to be mild, all right? And Oliver, he didn't get through half of Oliver's movies, but once he got to the Putin interviews, he started going after Oliver because he thought he was too soft on Putin in the Putin interviews. 
it got so bad that a person actually stood up, went to the rail and said, I didn't come here for a political debate. I want to hear about this guy's movies. Okay. Do you remember that? Yeah, right. And I think she got an ovation. Yeah, and, right. And right. it just put that guy in his place in a way because, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like she said, you got a problem with Oliver and Putin. Fine. Take it up on your own time. We're here for an evening of Oliver Stone to talk about his career. Mm-hmm. And his whole career is not one not movie. Putin, right. Yeah. <laughs> or a one documentary. Yeah. And he's done... Other things, you know, mm-hmm. South America, interview with Castro was, well, you know, he, he's just done things that maybe are, are not popular at the time. He never got to the latter part of his career because of the thing about Putin. Which you know, is, th- uh, it's it just so crazy because mm-hmm. for my two cents, I could say all that about American presidents, you know, all oh, the where's the weapons of mass destruction, right? Where's the real investigation into 9-11? Yeah, you, you could go on and on and say, well, look at, I'm not here to talk about that. And I think uh, there was a CBC reporter that talked to him earlier in the afternoon, and this is what what made my day kind of thing, uh, when he said, listen, when you talk to Putin, how come you didn't push him harder? You asked him how things are going, what's the economy looking like, or, you know, why didn't you talk to him about human rights and this or that? And then um, Oliver says something to the effect of, it's like, well, when you went there to talk to him, what did you ask him? And he says, oh, well, I never went. <laughs> right? Remember? So he says, well, well, you never went. You're a CBC reporter for how many years? You never went, but you're bugging me about the questions I asked when I took the time to go there. And by the way, he may not be a popular figure to go interview, but, you know, you wanted to maybe talk to your enemy to understand your enemy to see if you got any common ground. And, you know, for instance, uh, I mean, I don't even know if I should say enemy, but in the mean adversary, right? And Look it, we have some problems. Maybe we can work these out. What's your position here? What's it, you know, I, I want to understand your point of view. And that's what I get from Oliver Stone, that he will talk to somebody to understand their point of view, whether it's, you know, Chavez or things in Venezuela or whatever, you know. And um, it's especially true when, when you know how he handled his, you know, the JFK and, and the Warren Commission and all these critics that uh, every government agency kind of says, quote, Lee Oswald did it. And you no. No, that's not the truth. Now, maybe we don't know the exact truth, but in some of these other world issues, especially since he also did the untold history of the United States, where he delves into that like at home. Look, there's all these things that people don't know about, and I don't want to spend time right now, Tom, but you could you could spend time even talking about Pearl Harbor or the decision to drop the atomic bomb. You know, a lot of things that you could talk about, and uh, for me, hats off for Oliver for talking about them, and at the end of the conversation, you may say, you know, I even hate that Putin guy more or say, you know, I understand a little more about that point of view from that side of the world. I'm I'm glad I heard that point of view and I'll take me a, a month or two to, to to sift through that and see how much I agree with. You can see that, you know, right now talking you know, the war in Ukraine, right? Um, is it NATO's fault? Right? What? How much? What, why did they push Ukraine into uh, into joining NATO? And it, didn't they? Everybody tell them. I mean, regardless of how it ends, you know, you kind of whoops. How exactly did it start? And of course, he made a documentary, Ukraine on Fire, and revealing Ukraine. He's the executive producer. Okay, he's the executive producer. But and by the way, I wanted to mention. Well. Not only is Oliver in it, he stars in it. So Oliver is a, a person in the film interviewing Yanukovych. He's interviewing Vladimir Putin. So he's all over the film, but the director is Igor Lapatonic. But, you know, Oliver is conducting a lot of the interviews. I talked to both of them 
when I did the review for the late Robert Perry, because Robert Perry was in the film, okay, and so he couldn't review it. And I said, okay, I'll review it. And so they invited me to the screening, which they had at the Italian consulate out here in Los Angeles. And the reason it was there is because the producer of the film is Italian. She's an Italian lady. And so they put the film together. I know that. I interviewed Igor Lapatonic on Black right. Op Radio, and he spoke for like an hour and a half. Okay. But the thing is, the, the reason I say this, Len, is because this is the kind of thing that Fred Litwin uses, that Oliver Stone made this movie, Ukraine on Fire. Okay? <laughs> you know? He just came in as an executive producer later. Now, I gave the film a very good review because I thought it was really interesting, you know, because it, it, it was the first film that I had seen that tried to show the other side about what Ukraine really was and is and how the influence of people like Bandera. OK, and uh, I'm sure you talked about that, right? Yes. Of, yeah, of okay. course. Right. So, so I don't I don't have to explain. No, that. no, I know. Okay. And, and what Igor said was that when he first showed a draft to Oliver, uh, Oliver said, no, this is all wrong. You've got to change the order of your storytelling. And he really helped shape Igor go back and re-edit and put together the story in a in a much improved way that, you know, at first. Igor said he was kind of disappointed that he didn't think his film was that bad, but Oliver just was, you know, really harsh and said, you got to change this, you got to do that, you're not... Mm -hmm. So he, he really gave him a helping hand or corrected him as a... As a you know, he's not a junior filmmaker. Well, but anyway. the thing is, Oliver's, Oliver really likes editing, okay? I think I told you that first night we were up in Quebec, okay? Oliver really likes editing, and so that's probably how he helped. He probably rearranged segments of the film. And so, uh, you know, personally, I don't like editing. Okay, I don't know how you feel about it, you know, but I, I think it's boring and tedious. Okay, <laughs> you know, but Oliver really likes editing. And I'm not kidding about this. He can sit in the chair for hours on end and talk about editing with his, with his like in this film, our movie, we had two editors. We had uh, Rich Molina in L.A. We had Brian Burdan up in Seattle. And we go into that editing room at like five o'clock at night. OK, and he would stay there for three hours, you know, telling these guys what to do. Well, not not I shouldn't say that suggesting things to do. They'd already done stuff and he would ask them to sometimes rearrange things or he would say that was good. OK, but this interview, this woman, Eloise, was there at the Quebec gathering and she was very upset, like this other person was, about what this guy was doing with Oliver Stone. You know, and she had come for one thing, and this the moderator had sidetracked it into this rut. So she wanted to interview me and Oliver. And so Paul Blow, who's the Quebec guy, you know, he went ahead and uh, arranged this. And she came down in October, and uh, she had her crew there, all right, and she filmed this interview. And, and uh, you know— I really, really take a look at this. It's so good. You know, in this interview, you know, I I mainly was in the background because I, I wanted Oliver to have the forefront in this, you know, um, you know, because it should be about him and his ideas about the Kennedy case. All right. And so he came off like gangbusters. You know, he, he was really good. I thought I thought I really believe and I've seen almost all of them. 
you know, seen or heard almost all of his interviews he's done since the film's premiere, you know, and this is the best one. Now, the third thing we have up, do you know who Jerry Simone is? He was at the conference in Dallas back in November, and he's been working on an article about Mexico City for, and I'm not exaggerating, months on end, all right? Because there was this article by this Mexican guy, Soltero, which tried to debunk the whole thing about Oscar Contreras and the short blonde Oswald in Mexico. Now, I'm sure you know who Contreras was. For other people, let's talk a little bit about that. When Eddie and Danny went ahead and put together the Mexico City report, Eddie Lopez and Danny Hardway, they discovered that there were several people in Mexico City who did not recognize Oswald, which is weird because they are supposed to have interactions with him. Like Eusebio Askew would be one. Sylvia Duran would be another. Oscar Contreras would be another. Now, Askew and Duran, of course, were in the consulate. And, of course, Oswald went to the consulate, as that's what CA would want you to believe. Except they remembered a short, blonde Oswald, you know, and the real Oswald, of course, was not short and blonde. He had kind of brown hair and he was average height. Well, it's this guy, this this short, blonde Oswald wandered around the area and he went to a college campus and Contreras was a student there. And one night he met up with this guy and he said the same thing. The Oswald I remembered was not the guy that you have pictures of, but he's a short blonde guy. And he wanted me to help him to get to Cuba somehow. And he did not say anything about this until I think 1967, when he said it to a a Mexican diplomat. And then the word got around. And I think uh, people from the United States came down to interview him. All right. According to Danny and Eddie, The CIA did not want him to get, they didn't want either one of them to get near Contreras for whatever reason. So they did not interview Contreras, all right? But Contreras appears in several books. Well, what this Soltero guy, this Mexican guy, who's an author, tried to say is that somehow Contreras' story was not possible because of the dates that he was supposedly encountering Oswald and the dates that he was supposed to be in Tampico, 500 miles away, doing his reporter job. Well, Jerry Simone went ahead and punctured that. It's not, it's not impossible at all, okay, for him to have done both, okay? And since one of the reporters have to be on the scene to go ahead and write down a story, you can do it by proxy, have somebody go to the talk to somebody or you do it by telephone. All right. Okay. And so that story, because it was labeled as a anti-conspiracy story, first appeared in something called the conversation, but then it started making its rounds around the MSM. And so Jerry worked on it, worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. He's in the construction business, but he's very interested in the JFK case. And so we finally have it up now, and it's a very good story. So thank you for that. You you should have him on, Len. Okay, I'll do that. I just haven't read the article yet, but I'll read that. Yeah. Sure. Okay. All right. Now, the last story that is 
newly put up is my article, Gus Russo, there is nothing in those damn files. Now, I wrote this, of course, because Russo did a couple of stories for Spy Talk last year and this year around the holiday season in which he's trying to say that there really is nothing that the ARB released. Okay, and people who are hubbub about the last of the files are really kind of much ado about nothing. And he also knocked the Kappa conference. And I really, if you read the article, you'll see that I don't even think, I didn't see him there. I asked a couple of people, they didn't see him there. I asked the secretary, said no, he was not on the, on the attendance roster. So I don't know where he gets off criticizing the Kappa conference. Since by anything, any evidentiary measure, he wasn't at the Kappa conference, but he took a shot at it, okay? And so I went ahead and scored him on that. He also is a big fan of the book, The Oswalds, all right, that we reviewed, that James Norwood reviewed for us, Paul Gregory's book. And so I talk about that in here. And then <laughs> I went I went back to a book that he co-wrote with Harry Moses. This is a book that he did while he was working on something called Where Were You, America Remembers the JFK Assassination. That was a Tom Brokaw special, which Russo was the lead reporter. I cannot find the video. If anybody can find this video, please let me know. I would love to have it. I will pay for, you know, duplication, mailing, etc. All right. It's called Where Were You? America Remembers the JFK Assassination. It was on at the 2013 uh, anniversary for NBC. And one of the things that Russo tried to say there was through the late Richard Reeves, the journalist, that somehow Kennedy got us into Vietnam, which is one of the stupidest things that I think I've ever seen in the MSM. And I've seen a lot of dumb things on the MSM. All right. I mean, that was just absolutely nuts. I mean, look, on the day Kennedy was inaugurated, there was not one combat troop in Vietnam. On the day he was assassinated, there was not one combat troop in Vietnam. One year after Johnson won the election and was inaugurated, there were 170,000 combat troops in Vietnam. And then when Johnson handed it off to Nixon, it went up to 540,000 combat troops. Nixon dropped more bomb tonnage on Indochina than Johnson did. Kennedy, on the other hand, was getting out at the time of his death. And any number of historians will tell you this, like David Kaiser. All right, so this, this is just utter nonsense. Now, somebody pointed out the fact that he wrote something for the Mob Museum blog in November of 2021. That's his place in Las Vegas that is supposed to explain how Las Vegas got off the ground. And so they chronicle and have exhibits about it, a lot of the mobsters who were involved with that. Well, in that entry, he tries to pass off the whole Cuban-Russian angle, manipulating Lee Harvey Oswald in Mex Mexico City. 
as I've explained on this show tonight and many other times, it's highly dubious whether Oswald was in Mexico City. All right. Then he goes after Oliver Stone and he says he he was asked to be a consultant and he withdrew after he read the script. And I have something that counters that. Okay, because that's not what I remember him saying to me when I talked to him in Dallas in 1992. All right. Now, this is what he says at the end of that mob blog entry. Oswald was a serial murderer, wannabe, and a violent sociopath. That's what he was. Well, if you take a look at uh, our film, JFK Revisited, we have Bob Tannenbaum, who used to be a prosecutor in New York City, and he ran the homicide division for seven years, never lost a murder case. All right. In JFK Revisited, he said there's no jury in the country that could convict Lee Harvey Oswald on the evidence in the Warren Commission. So I'd like to ask us, well, how many homicide cases you tried the verdict? I know the answer. Zero. All right. So those are the uh, four new things. I think they're all very much worth your time. And please take advantage of the information about the Sirhan uh upcoming hearing okay um now let me i think i have some letters like i usually do from readers okay so let me get to these and i try and sort these out in the order that i got them so that you know, people won't have to wait too long to get an answer to their question. All right. So I think I have about five of them. All right. So let's start off with, I think the date on this one is January the 5th. Johnny Cairns. Johnny is a British researcher who's written a couple of articles for us. Very good guy, very good researcher. First of all, Happy New Year. I hope 2023 turns out to be a good one. I thought I would send you over an email with a question, but maybe more of an observation. I was watching Russia Judgment earlier, and something which he overpassed witnesses said piqued my curiosity. When Lane interviewed these witnesses, Holland and the other, that's Skinny Holland, and the other railroad men, each man collaborated, corroborated one another. They also specifically recalled that when they got to the parking lot where the smoke and shots had originated from, the cars in the lot were bumper to bumper. Cars were also parked right up close to the picket fence. When these men got to the area where the smoke had originated from, they noticed footprints in the mud. Footprints on the fence itself, footprints on a car's bumper. I think Holland had said that it looked like someone had been standing on it and cigarette butts next to these muddy footprints. This would lead one to conclude that the prints and butts had been made or dropped by persons who recently occupied that spot. My question is simple. Were these footprints ever photographed by the DPD? I don't think they were. That's the answer to one question. 
or the footprints on the bumper of the car? I don't think so. Were the secret were the cigarette butts ever photographed or collected by the DPD? Again, I don't think so. All right. Were they tested for DNA? Again, I don't think so. All right. What brand of cigarettes were they? Were they American or foreign? This may sound far-fetched, but this type of information could have led investigators to whoever was behind the fence at the time of the assassination, especially since so many witnesses were claiming that shots had originated from that area. Have you ever thought of this point before? No, I haven't, actually. What struck me as powerful throughout these interviews were the witnesses' absolute certainty that shots had originated from that parking lot area. Yeah, it's very forceful, those witnesses that Mark interviewed uh, on the whole issue of this puff of smoke and the sound coming from over there that they heard at the opposite end of the trestle. By the way, um, when he's talking about the types of cigarettes, all right, the, the way that works with police is at least good police work is that they'll try and find the places in the area that were cigarette vendors, okay? And then they will go ahead and go to that place and ask them, in this case, for example, did you sell so many packs of Territons, okay, in the last month or so, okay? And so that's how they do it. That's how they do it, okay? But, you know, the Dallas police, I'm all positive, didn't do anything like that. That's kind of, uh, you know, in this case, no. Uh-uh. Don't ask me why, but that's just the way it is. All right, nice question, John. January the 6th, Thomas Casca. Hi, Lynn and Jim. Happy New Year. I wanted to let you know that with the help of a well-known researcher who asked to remain anonymous in this, I was able to have an email exchange with Ruth Payne. Oh, my God. I was trying to discover who Oswald could have been speaking to in Spanish on the phone at the Beckley Street rooming house, as Pat Hall recalled him doing. Of known persons, I thought George DeMore and Sheldon was a possibility, but he had left Dallas before L.A. show moved to Beckley. I also thought maybe Ruth Payne, based on her later activity in Nicaragua, might have spoken to Oswald in Spanish. Mrs. Kane was, Mrs. Payne was kind enough to reply to my email and informed me she did not speak or understand Spanish in 1963, and she did not begin to learn to speak Spanish until years later. Although she did not answer explicitly, I took her email reply to indicate that she had no knowledge that Oswald even spoke Spanish. We know from Warren Commission testimony of Nelson Delgado that Oswald did speak at least some Spanish. That means Pat Hall could be accurate in her recollections because the Warren Commission proved all Oswald did speak some Spanish. So a question remains among many, many others. Who was Oswald talking to on the phone in Spanish at the Beckley Street rooming house? If neither of those two people. Well, that's a heck of an interesting question, isn't it? Because it leaves open the fact that there was an Alpha 66 cell in Dallas. And reportedly, Oswald attended one of their meetings at Harlandale. Okay, so if Pat Hall's recollection is correct and 
it wasn't the people that, like, you know, Dornschild wasn't even there. Ruth said she didn't speak Spanish. We think, I'm pretty sure Marina didn't either. All right. Uh, that would indicate maybe it was one of those guys. You know, it's a very interesting question. Thank you so much for that. All right. Sunday, January the 8th, Rich Searing. All right. Hello again, Mr. Eugenio. As you suggested, I am submitting some questions on the Kennedy assassination for your broadcast on Black Op Radio. Back in the fall of 2022, I contacted David Lifton about his upcoming book, Final Charade, as I was hoping to glean some insight about what his new book would cover. He wouldn't tell me a thing, probably for fear of something, somebody stealing the ideas before the book was out. Do you have any information you could share on this? Do you think the book will ever be published? No, actually, I don't. I have very little information about what Final Charade is going to be about. I think maybe Len interviewing Pat Valentino, he might have something, ideas. And a guy named Steve Nosser on the Education Forum, I think, said he's trying to recover the manuscript from Lifton's crashed computer. All right. So I, I really do hope the book does come out. I really do. Because the guy worked so hard on it. I think it deserves to be published, you know. So, you know, that should be interesting. In relation, I read Lifton's other book, Best Evidence. I contacted Dr. Cyril Wacht over a year ago, who seems to disagree with Lifton's theory on the body being surgically altered between Dallas and Bethesda. I just wondered what your opinions are on Lifton's book and if you agree with his theories and research. It seems outlandish, but he documents many interesting things that give me pause to think he may be onto something. I, in my very long review of Douglas Horn's book, Inside the ARB, I did a mini review of best evidence. Okay, that's, I think that's in part one or part two, because I think I did five parts on that. All right, and I went ahead and wrote about three pages on best evidence. And so you can find my comments there, you know, in that review of Inside the ARB. I'm currently reading Harvey and Lee by John Armstrong, as I finally was able to find an affordable copy. Like Mr. Lifton's theories, this book seems really out there, but he again presents interesting documentation to back up his theories. Do you think there is anything to his claims? I read all 900 pages of Harvey and Lee years ago at Mimi's restaurant, which I went to for two weeks, sat down in a chair, ordered lunch, and stayed there for four hours each day, all right? So unlike people who have criticized John, I've actually read the book. To me, it doesn't really matter if John has proven his main thesis. There's so much interesting stuff in that book that even if you disagree with the main thesis, all right, 
you can profit from reading that book. To give you just one example. And just hang on for anybody who doesn't know, his thesis is that there is a Harvey Oswald and a Lee Oswald. There's two people, right? Yes. And, and that's where now his book, like you see, the documents support two people at different places. And I subscribe more to an imposter. But, you know, like John, all the time, whenever he's on, he says, well, just show me where I'm wrong. Prove me wrong. But until then, he his supposition is that there's a Lee Oswald and a Harvey Oswald. I mean, but, you know, when he goes through the documentation about Stripling High School and New Orleans and New York and that, you can see that there's two sets of records. You know, that's the, uh, I think, confusing thing. All right. But, for example, his chapter on Mexico City is 100 pages long, and it's one of the best things I've ever read on Mexico City. His section about all the CAP members who knew Oswald in New Orleans, he does a very good chronicle of that, one of the best I've ever seen. His analysis of the Tippett case is very good. So whether or not you believe in his overall main thesis about there being two Oswalds, all right, who shared the same identity, and this was set up by the CIA, probably James Angleton, a long time before. You know, that's up to you, you know. Well, some people do, some people don't. There's been very vitriolic arguments about this, all right? But anybody can profit from reading that book if you go in with a fair mind. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence for me in the case is the testimony of all the people at Parkland who say the back of JFK's head was blasted out, which clearly would indicate a back exit wound with a bullet from the front. The Zapruder film doesn't show the back of the head blasted out. That's not really accurate. Robert Groden has shown in, I think, his book, Absolute Proof, that there are a few frames of the Zapruder film that seem to indicate that the back of the head is, is, is open. It does show a right side hit, but it looks to be more on the side or maybe top of the skull. How do you account for this? When I attended the Kappa conference a few years ago, one of the speakers answered this question for me when he claimed the film had been altered. Do you agree? I'm an agnostic on whether the film has been altered, just like I'm an agnostic on John Armstrong's theories. Okay. So I'm just giving you the best information I have that there is not a case that the film has to have been altered. You know, there are people who have found certain parts of the film. I think it's Z338, if I remember correctly. Okay, that you can see something there. Now, there is a married couple in Hollywood. And you know who I'm talking about, right, Lynn? Yeah, but for those who don't. Uh, Go ahead. Talk. What are their names? Sydney was her name, right? Sydney Wilkinson. Yeah, Sydney. Yeah. Sidney Wilkinson, that's it. And Dave Mantic writes about her in, in his book. Did film and special effects. and they do, they, they do editing in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they, they have a third-generation copy of the film. They believe that there is a blackout of the back of Kennedy's head. They're not saying the film is altered like other people do. Like people like Fetzer and Lifton talked about extensive alteration. They're just saying that part of the film has been altered. 
And in my opinion, like I said, I'm an I'm an, an agnostic on this, but they have a pretty good case. And in fact, Dave Mantic writes about that in his new book, which we'll talk about later down the line. All right. I know there are many theories out there and there's no way they can all be correct. But I do believe we can discuss and respectively disagree on things. Mr. Lifton indicated to me that this wasn't so in the JFK research community. I'm hoping is incorrect. Thanks for your time and consideration. Okay, well, I'm trying to be as fair and objective as I can. Okay. All right. And I wrote an obituary about, uh, you know, David Lifton. It's on, and it's on our website. And in fact, I think it's the only obituary. Have you seen another one? No. No, I haven't. No. There was, a, there was like a four-liner in the New York Times by, I think, Lifton's sister. I'm the only one who actually wrote an obituary about David Lifton. Oh, by the way, I just want to mention that I went to Hawaii and interviewed John Armstrong, and I, I, there's a seven-hour interview I have for direct download on Black Op Radio, and John's been on several times over the archives, and he'll be coming up with a new four-hour interview very soon on Black Op Radio, so stay tuned for that. All right, January the 8th, Patrick. Jim, I hate hitting you up with Ruth Payne stuff. I just saw tonight for the first time the documentary you were in, The Assassination and Mrs. Payne. What were your thoughts on it? What would you have done differently? Okay, I enjoyed it. I just wish the last 15 of the documentary was at the hour mark and the last 40 minutes was a more detailed version of the last 15 minutes. I did do wish she would have brought up her calendar, but quite frankly, she would have had that same scripted answer she'd said word for word for 60 years. She did get rattled when he started pulling out declassified documents about her father and sister, plus that Marina was told she was an agent. What were your thoughts and what would you have done to make it better? Take care. Well, saying you're making something better is all is always a kind of relative statement. You know what? Some people like the film. I like the film the way it is because Max tried to tread both sides of the fence if it would have been me, I would have eliminated Priscilla Johnson, Max Holland, Paul Hoke, all those people. And I would have concentrated on things like the Payne's participation in the Minix camera charade, which Carol Hewitt wrote about for Probe magazine and is in the book, The Assassinations. I think that is very incriminating of Ruth and Michael and their roles with the FBI. Okay, in a nutshell, what that says is that the FBI ditched Oswald's original Minix camera. There began to be a scandal in Dallas about it because the police were yelling about the FBI, how they had ditched what they found, a Minix camera. And they substituted another Minix camera, which they said belonged to Michael Payne. Now, if you believe that, I can sell you a bridge in Arizona. But they acted as if Michael Payne's Minix was Oswald's Minix, when in fact Carol proved that they found a Minix camera on the first or second day of the search. Hoover did not like this because it would indicate, of course, that Oswald was a spy. And so what they did is they then ran this charade about how Oswald's camera never existed, and what they found was 
Michael Payne's camera. They worked on this with an FBI agent named Bardwell Odom, who, as we know, did a lot of work for Hoover in the JFK case. So that's one of the things that I would have really made a a big deal about, okay? Because I, I think something like that is very important as far as the evidence goes. Now, I'm not going to hammer Max because I'm, I'm glad he got his film out. I'm glad it was picked up by streamers. I'm glad it made some noise, all right? I'm glad it played all those festivals, all right? I'm glad for the first time people can see some of the problems with that story, at least some of them. So I think it was, I think it was okay. I mean, the, gu- the guy did a heck of a lot of work, and he did it all by himself. So I give him a lot of credit for that. All right, Sean Watson. How many pieces of evidence relating to the JFK assassination have gone missing or been mutilated to some degree? Okay, I'm not looking for an exact count, just a ballpark figure. Well, he lists it here. There's one of them, the Harper fragment. There's that fourth bullet that Randy Robertson talks about in the long version of JFK Revisited. There is the Kennedy's brain, the tissue slides, and one other exhibit, I believe, that disappeared if they were ever in the National Archives. I'm not so sure that they were in the National Archives. We just talked about Oswald's Minix camera. That was deep-sixed by the FBI. So there's some pretty important stuff there that somehow went away. Now, if you believe there was a Mauser at the scene of the crime, that's something else that disappeared. And there was a Mauser shell found in Dealey Plaza a few days after the assassination. That's disappeared. So as you can see, there's some pretty important things that are gone from this case. You know, that would be important. I also believe that the pictures of Kennedy's brain, those are gone. The ones that came out that night, that John Stringer said that he was actually doing a serial serial slides for. Those are gone. So those are those are pretty important things and pretty interesting things. So I'd say about six or seven off the top of my head. Now, if I worked on this for a week or so, I'm sure I can come up with many more. <laughs> okay, but that's just a that's just a, a starter. All right, January thirteenth from Chuck Marler. Chuck Marler used to help me with Probe Magazine. Sometimes, oh, this is about my Gus Russo article. Sometimes statements from people like Gus Russo serve a clarifying purpose to the JFK case. They provide a reason for the research community to respond and give a summary of the evidence to rebut their their claims. Your recent response on Kennedys and King was a great closing argument summarizing all the evidence, not only in release files, but also for the case in general. Thanks. That was awesome. Thanks for that, uh, Chuck. In the Gus Russo article, I made a list of 20 items that made possible by the ARB. Okay. And they were all very important things that we, some of them we put in our film because the MSM would not mention them, but they change the contours of the case. And anybody who's seen the short version or the long version of our film will understand what I'm talking about. All right. The Tucker Carlson video 
I think Chuck uh, put this up at his own site. Uh, it has gotten 1,200 views and is getting about 25 views a day after a month of posting. Now, I'm sure if you go to YouTube, it's probably in the millions. Okay, the Car- the Tucker Carlson thing was pretty big, you know, and pretty big for a long time. That's where he's saying the CIA is involved. Yes, yes. And let me make one other closing thing uh, before we sign off, Lynn. When this show airs will be almost exactly six months after the DVD of JFK Revisited first was issued. Six months. You can add it up yourself. So that's a half a year. As of right now, JFK Revisited is number six at Amazon in sales of documentaries. Six months after it was released. Can you imagine this? This is incredible. Well, I paid for my copy. (laughs) Okay. This is unbelievable. I mean, this is six months now. And this thing is still selling in DVD format. There's feature films that don't sell, okay, like this one has sold. And those get more advertising than our film does. The only advertising our film has gotten is, is mainly the stuff that me and Oliver have done. Sometimes, like Coast to Coast, we were on. Uh, Oliver was on Joe Rogan. Those kinds of things. But that is that is a, a really, and this is a, the last thing about the success of this documentary, which is really something to talk about. I mean, I'll sign off with this. From the day that it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, and how many JFK documentaries premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, the biggest film festival in the world. It sold to about 11 or 12 countries. It had a window that is from the date the film premiered to the date it went on sale for DVD. A good window and for a feature film is six months. Ours was 11 months, 12 almost. Then once it was on, went on sale to DVD, it was number one for three weeks at the Amazon list. And today, six months later, it's still in the top 10. All right. We all owe a lot of gratitude to Oliver Stone and Rob Wilson for doing what they did. They could have made a lot more money doing a feature film, but they went ahead and they decided to do this. We're very much grateful for them doing that. There has never been a JFK documentary with the success that this thing had. And I predict there will never be another one. Okay, Lynn, any comments? No, uh, that's a very good note to end on. And, of course, uh, you wrote the screenplay for it. And yes. uh, and uh, the, the accompanying book is available as well. Right. The book is called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Okay. And it's it's really a the two annotated screenplays for both the two-hour version and the four-hour version. And then there's a lot of interviews, excerpts, that we couldn't put into the film because it was we were cut off at four hours. But there's some really, really interesting stuff in those interviews, all right, which is actually longer than the actual two screenplays. So go ahead and then take a look at that also, all right? And uh, like I said, we all owe a lot of gratitude to Oliver and Rob for giving us an opportunity to enlighten a lot of people on the facts of the JFK case.
Right. All right. Very good, Jim. Thank you so much, Lynn. Okay. I'll talk to you later, partner. Okay.